Hello, and welcome to the High Street Community Church Podcast. We're so excited you're learning alongside us, and we pray this message leads you closer to the Lord and others. High Street Community Church is simply a family of friends following Jesus. God bless you as you listen. this morning, and I love the words of that song that Joe sang, so that your eyes um, turn to us too. Your eyes are on your children. Your eyes are on each of us in our lives. And what we bring in this morning, the thoughts that we've already been uh, muddling through as we wake up, and, um, and what's been on our hearts this week, your eyes are turned towards us. And when your eyes are turned towards us, as that song says, your grace abounds. It's not an examination, but a love. And so we just want to open up our hearts to that this morning. Um, we have some like really exciting, fun, and uh, tough things sometimes to tackle as we talk. And so we just ask for your help. We really need your help. It'd be a failure, and we would regret it if you didn't speak this morning. And it would be a waste of time to come if you were not here. And so we do turn our attention to you. And we love that your attention is turned to us. So would you help break down any barriers that are there right now? And we just ask for your guidance and for your Holy Spirit to be here in a special way. As we learn together, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So um, we're almost through First John. Is that exciting? For those of you guys who don't remember, we're in a series on First John called Live Your Best Life. And so we have this sermon and one more, and then we've gotten through all five chapters. So Danny has encouraged us to read through all five chapters, so if you haven't done that yet, it might be a good time to start since we're almost done. Uh, But it's been a great time. I've loved being a part of it. I feel like I've learned a lot, and um, I know Danny and I in the office will take sometimes an hour to kind of talk through what's going on in the book, and I feel like we've been surprised. I don't know about you, but certain themes that have come up that we didn't even anticipate being children of God's been one for me um, that I just feel like God's hammered home each time I've been studying. Um, abiding is another theme. Um, Danny taught uh, through two, two, and it's last three sermons, two of the series were on love, the love life. So if you're here for those, love has been a huge theme that's come up. And, uh, and then two weeks ago, Danny taught on discernment too, which I really appreciate that John, the author, brings that in this idea that we need to be aware of the world around us, the influences that are going on, in order to receive the love of God well and be good lovers of Him. So, today I get to teach you, and we're talking on a theme that's really interesting to me. Um, My goal today is to tie together two major ideas. Um, the The first one is obedience, and the second one is victory. So, obedience and victory, and the the theme or the title of this is The Overcoming Life. Um, So if you are looking through your notes, which are in your bulletins, that's the first big blank, the overcoming life. Um, So raise your hand if you feel like in your week or in your day today that you're living the overcoming life. And we got a couple of you, that's great. So more often than not, (laughs) we uh, don't feel like overcomers, is that right? So raise your hand, though, if you think that the gospel has something to do with overcoming. Oh, wow. Yeah, see, there's a lot more of you. So what's missing? That's, that's kind of what I'm wondering this morning. 
what the, why, why aren't we feeling like we're living the overcoming life? So if living our best life, that's the title of the series, by the way, if living our best life means an overcoming life, then what are we living? So the opposite, I would say, of an overcoming life is a defeated life. So symptoms of the defeated life I thought would be appropriate to start with. There's a few symptoms that we can note in our own hearts to help us to know if we're living the defeated life. The one is that our circumstances have taught us to aim low rather than aiming high, to shoot for the ground, to, to lower what our hope level is. Another symptom would be to aim differently. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You have to learn throughout life. You don't always aim and hit the target, right? But sometimes we aim differently and let things influence us that shouldn't be there. So sometimes that can be a symptom if we're aiming differently than what the Bible says. Another one would be, why even aim at all? You know, just kind of flop over like a dead fish, right? Michael, I'm pointing to Michael because he stabbed a fish and his hand this week. Um, so why even aim at all? Just give up. It's easier that way. That's a definite symptom of a defeated life. Another one, as I was praying and thinking about it this morning that came up, was uh, a divided aim. So uh, I imagined a hunter, and there's a deer and a duck, and they're just like back and forth, and they can't decide which one to shoot. That's also some of the symptoms we have. I mean, in, in, you look at the Pharisees, Jesus gets mad at them for being hypocrites because they say they follow God, but they do something else. So a divided aim. So those are the four symptoms I was thinking about, and maybe as you're here this morning, one of those or multiple of those kind of hit home with you about the way that the defeated life is surfacing rather than the overcoming life. So instead of letting disappointment and failure, the experiences that we've had in our past or even the experiences we've had this morning um, or this week set the bar, today I wanted to look at the Word of God and what First John says and see what he teaches us about living the overcoming life. So if you guys would read with me or you just want to open your heart and let me read over you, um, we're looking at 1 John 5, 1 through 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water 
Ud and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. That God has born concerning his Son. Oh, sorry, I jumped ahead. A testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, that is a lot. It's a lot to hold. It was a lot for me to figure out what to talk about. But as I uh, was praying and thinking about this, on my heart and what I felt like God was wanting us to dive into was connecting how keeping and obeying God's commands is an act of love for him and others. And it's not burdensome, which can be surprising for some of us. But instead, that by faith in action we can live an overcoming life. So it would help us to be clear on what overcoming is, right? John, this, the author of this and a few other books of the Bible, uses the word overcome more than any other New Testament author. So that says something about the importance of this word, but also something, says something about John. Like he probably went through a lot of things where he had to overcome, right? One of them being thinking that the Messiah himself was crucified and died, and then, oh my gosh, he didn't. I mean, he did, but he came back to life, right? Um, in Greek, the word overcome is nikao. It's I, or I, N-I-K-A-O, nikao. Sorry, not ow. Nikao. And that Greek word means to overcome, obviously, to subdue, conquer, to prevail, to get the victory. It's a verb. So you're like, you're doing it. It's not something that's happening to you. It's like, you're, this is what you're doing. It's an action. And it comes from the, the noun Nike, so N-I-K-E, which we know as Nike. Anyone familiar with Nike? So, and that word means victory. It's the name, actually, of the, a Greek goddess of victory. Um, and it's actually the image of this goddess is stamped on the back of Olympic medals. So there's this idea that, you, I mean, we think of Olympics, that's the top, they're the victors over everyone. So this is, we're now doing the verb, so nikkeiau, o, nikkeiau is the verb of that type of victory, of that all-out, top-the-line, overcoming victory. So it's the way or action that brings victory. So would you like to know how to overcome like that? Yeah? There are three applications of that definition um, that I noticed. And this is in your notes. The first one is to Jesus. It's, a, it's of Christ. Um, and it's talking about his victory of his foes. So this is like from Colossians 2.15. This might be familiar to you. It says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. 
So there's this sense of Jesus overcoming completely, utterly overcoming through what he did on the cross. So Nikao is also used of Christians. That's us who placed our faith in Jesus. And it's a sense that we hold fast to our faith even unto death or persecution. Now, we may not face overt persecution like people do in some other countries, but we do have we do go through suffering and we do have various forms of oppression and struggle in our lives. And we, uh, as we hold fast in faith, that's part of Nikao, that's part of overcoming. And Revelations um, talks about this a lot. This is another book that John, our author, wrote. He says, the one who conquers, which is the same word, Nikao, will be dressed in white clothes. And, it's, and this is Jesus talking. He says, and I will never erase his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. And then he says later in Revelations 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. It's kind of cool, like we're actually doing the same thing Jesus did when we're living the overcoming life. And he's inviting us into that victory together. The third, de- the third application of this definition surprised me, and this is what I wanted to focus on a little bit more today. It's of a trial. So when, it's like when one goes to law to win or maintain one, one's case. So I never knew that that trial sense meant to overcome. I mean, it kind of makes sense, but I wouldn't have thought of that as part of the Greek definition of nikaio. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, and we can think together, what does this third definition add to our understanding of overcome? Well, if we look at 1 John 4, 16 through 18, part Danny taught through last week, it will give us a clue to understand this. So this is what that says. 1 John 4, 16 through 18. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Hopefully. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now that's some, a, a verse we could do a sermon on every Sunday for the rest of our lives and still enjoy the power behind there's no fear in love. There's no fear in love because fear has to do with punishment. So what I liked about this, it gave me insight about this, uh, the trial aspect, the case aspect, was that this talked about a judgment. So in this case, as we're looking at this, who is the judge? God. Good. Yes, God is the judge. And we have confidence before God's judgment, according to 1 John 4 right there, because of who? Because of Christ, Jesus. So we know God is the judge, and that Jesus, we have confidence because of him. And in 1 John 2, 1, that we read, read and studied earlier in the summer, it calls Jesus our advocate. Now in the Bible and in Greek, uh, the Greek times, Greek thought, advocate meant 
one who pleads another's case before a judge. Do you see how that connects? So like Jesus is like our attorney. He's the one who pleads our case before the judge. And this is a little tougher question, but you might get it if you read the scripture with me earlier. And who is testifying on our behalf? Well, that's sort of true. But if you read the passage earlier, let's give one more guess. The Spirit, yes. Did someone else say that? I heard someone up here. The Holy Spirit is testifying on our behalf. Uh, the, the passage earlier in 5 verses 6 says, verse 6 says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So if you were going to court to plead your case and you knew the judge perfectly loved you and favors your best and you knew the advocate had a clean case, airtight because he actually wagered his own life to assure the win, and the main witness, main witness's other name was Truth, a nickname from the judge himself. How would this affect your feelings or thoughts about that case? Anyone, shut something out there. It's a what? Yeah, right, yeah. You, you, you would obviously win or the, the other side wouldn't win. Yes. What else? How'd you feel about it? Or what'd you think? Confident. Confident. What else? Relieved. Relieved, so true. Let's do one more. Slam dunk, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's victory, right? You'd feel um, secure also, I was thinking. And uh, I'd mentioned this to Carrie, and she's like, I'd feel excited. Like, I'd want to get in there and watch that case, like, j- be slam dunked, right? Um, so John is trying to get us to understand this, and his audience, who he's writing the letter to, to understand and know this is how God views us now. This is how God views us currently. It's not just something that we will feel after we pass away and walk through the pearly gates, and then there's the the gavel at that point, it says in 1 John 4, as he, Jesus is, so are we in this world. So it says, we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as Jesus is, so as God has judged Jesus, bam, the gavel went down, so are we in this world. It's not, so are we in the next life. It's so are we now. So like, we've been judged because Jesus has been judged and that's what he wants us to know. That's where our confidence comes from, and that's what this definition of overcoming life looks like. So the court case is a picture and a clarifying definition of the overcoming life for us. We see that it's not up to us to win this case. Right? It's not up to us. We see that it's already guaranteed we see that the case is already closed that, and that the verdict and victory is displayed now. And the way that it's displayed is through our love of God and others. So as we live this verdict out, as we live the overcoming life, as First John 4 says, love is perfected in us. Love is perfected in us as we live out this verdict of the overcoming life. 
So, I, I'm wondering as we think about this overcoming life, how does this fit with obedience? When I hear obedience, I hear it more in the sense of the disordered world. Even when I read it now in the Bible, I'm like, obey. Ugh, there's so much work, right? It's so inconvenient. But God's final judgment affects our present obedience. Like, how would you want to respond to that sort of judge, advocate, witness, who did all of that on your behalf to guarantee this case? How would you want to respond? I mean, I think at the least you'd want to go up afterwards and shake their hand, right? And say, thanks. I, I had no idea it was going to be that overwhelmingly successful. But for those who live separate from God, obedience seems exhausting, right? It seems like so much work. And I think a lot of that goes back to, well, I mean, culturally, right, we, having freedom is the most important thing. So anyone that would tell you to do something other than what you want to do, uh, that's, that seems like the greatest but it also goes back to that when Danny and I were talking about this, he was like, all I can picture is my parents telling me to obey. And so I wrote out a brief conversation, example conversation, that this, what this kind of oppressive obedience feels like. So, for example, your parent says, make your bed. And you say, I don't want it. And then they say, well, do you told. And you say, why? And they say, because I said so. And you say, no. And they say, do you want a timeout? And you say, no. Well, then do what you're told. And you're fine, fine. And then you go, make your bed, hopefully. Half of it or whatever. Bunch of sheets underneath, cover up the top. Whatever that is. So that's a picture of op oppressive obedience that we get from the culture. And the funny thing is, in the church, we also experience that. right? We live in that sort of oppressive obedience. We live, even though we've been given this declarative victory, through Jesus that says, as he is, so are we in this world, we still, in our habits, live separate from God. And so the commands of God seem a great inconvenience for us, or they also seem a, a source of imminent failure. I, mean, I don't know how many times you've tried to love other people, but it doesn't always go well. It's not always easy, right? There's lots of other commands. Be holy as I am holy. Is that easy? No. But that's why this court case happened before those commands came to you. That Jesus died from, was crucified, according to the Bible, before the world was made. And so when we place our faith in Jesus, and it begins with our faith, then we're working from that place. We're trying to obey and to walk in this relationship with him, not separate from him, but in relationship with him. So it's not oppressive obedience, but it's actually a loving obedience. And I remember it was like probably 10 years ago, I was driving around roundabout my car thinking about this, and there's a sense, I remember God saying, or I, was just, I mean, this is not him saying, I was thinking about it in such a way that it clarified, God doesn't need me to do things for him, he just wants me to do things for him. I'm not needed by God. My obedience, he's not giving me commands, so that I can do more for him, so he can get more accomplished. God has plenty of resources to get the things done 
that he needs to get done. God wants relationship with me. He doesn't need relationship with me. And so I, but I need relationship with him, right? And so that, that's, that changes this framework. And the phrase that kept coming through my head when I realized that was, my obedience isn't something for me to do. It's actually an act of love. Like, it's a loving obedience. So then every time I read obedience or obey in the scriptures, um, I started to translate in my head loving obedience, loving obedience. Because love for me helped me to understand that it was about relationship. Um, with those who are in relationship with God, for those who are in relationship with God, his commands lead to life. All, every command leads to life. And here's an example of that contrast to the make your bed one. So let's imagine this is God now dealing with us after the trial as children of God. He says, clean your room. And we say, but why? I don't want to. Well, there's a huge value in our family. We honor each other by taking care of our home. Here, actually, let me teach you. We'll together. We'll find every nook and cranny. I'll find the dirt underneath the bed. I'm going to teach you how to do this, and you'll have to do it tomorrow, and I'll walk with you through every step of the way. So there's a sense of his, him working with us, of learning to obey, is this connected relational um, experience. God's commands have... Okay, so let, I think this was clarifying for me when I thought about this. God's commands are revelatory. Well, oftentimes I think they're just commands for us to do, but God's commands actually show us who he is. So back in the Old Testament, before there were commands, and then the Ten Commandments came out, I think, I mean, obviously they were scared of God because he made the mountain smoke and all that stuff, but they were also relieved to know how to live, right? This is what the God of life, the God of light, the God of love says about his world. Like, that sh like wouldn't you want to know what he thinks about how life works? Because if I start doing them opposite of that or without even thinking about that, it's going to do a lot more damage to me and to those around me. So if these are revelatory of who he is, then this shows me um, his heart. So if he says, be holy, he's not saying, you got to strive for holiness or else I won't like you. He's saying, be holy because that's an overflowing part of my being and I made you like that. I made you to be like that. His commands are reasonable. They're reasonable, to, they seem unreasonable to us because of our struggle with sin. They seem, oh, so overwhelming for me to, to get over that hump to, to obey in that way. But that's, that's what God has dealt with. Like that, th th those sins that get in the way that seem unreasonable are actually, as God accesses our hearts there, then they become relational resources for us to move forward as we obey and trust him. So they're reasonable, they make sense. And they make sense with the world. A God who is life would command that. Do not murder, right? Do not be angry. That just makes sense. Even if it's hard for us, they're reasonable. Like It, it makes sense with the way he made the world. Um, God's commands are also relational. And I think that's where we, we often fall apart. We tend to live out God's commands as if they're another thing for me to do, like go shopping, take the dog on the walk, get the car filled with gas, and oh yeah, be holy while you do it, and love some people while you do it. And they're just a whole list of things on my to-do list that I need to get done. 
rather than being something that God's invited me into, hey, your whole life is, is going to be about love now that you've, you've been uh, claimed by me. Your whole life is going to be about being holy now. It's not a, and by the way, if you're struggling to do that, that's a sign that you're not doing it with me anymore. That's a, that's a sign that you're doing it out of task rather than out of relationship. The last thing that his commands show us when we read them in the Bible, they're actually reviving. His commands revive us. They're, they're not just like good ways to live. They're actually the best way to live. And even sometimes when they're hard, like there's definitely, like there's one point, I shared this with the guys that we meet with from church once, where I was in this prayer chapel down at Biola when I was a student, and I felt like God said in my heart, just like a little nudge, like, go up front, a small chapel, there's like nine of us in there, uh, and just start singing, I love you, Lord. You know that song? And I was like, no way. I'm not going to do that in the middle of these people's prayer time. That's so embarrassing. Like, I'm probably going to distract them from you. Don't you want to talk to them, God? You know, I'm running through all these thoughts in my head, very similar to how you were, Vet, earlier with that, that scripture. And, but in the end, I did it. And as I did it, I was like, you know, like, I love you, Lord. You know, just like super nervous. But then it came out, and as I sang that first verse, it actually started to feel really cool. And that no one came up to me afterwards and said, hey, good job, or great voice, or that changed my life. But I remember that now as this time that I obeyed what God did, and it did bring me life. It was, a, it was me taking a risk, and God showed up and was there with me. You know, and so can you imagine that with like the numerous things we encounter throughout the day? to live in what God has commanded us to do, it's actually living our best life, right? It's actually the way to live best. So I think the culture and even our own sin um, to, to our eyes or to the eyes of our soul, it appears opposite. It seems irrational. But then when we do it, it actually forms us in a way that brings us joy. It brings us life. And then even in those failures, that's when the 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 jury's already made the decision. You're his. And so love is perfected and fear is cast out. So there's no fear in punishment anymore. Oh, so obedience is now relational. And obedience is fulfilled only in love. And its commands are not burdensome. I just say that because that's on the end of the notes. And our faith in Jesus, through that faith, we then overcome the world. And I was thinking about this, that this week. A lot of times we think of victory as like an overt, um, you know, I won the war, we chop the guy's head off, we take their, their village or whatever, right? But that is, it's, it's, oh, we won, you know, or I got the gold medal, it's on my shirt. But I think as Christians, when that gavel's gone down, it's more subversive than that. We've won and so we actually don't necessarily need to fight for the win all the time. We walk in a confidence, and so it's sort of a, a stealth victory. And that communicates many times a lot more to the culture around us and even to those we love if we're able to stand in that judgment of God rather than fighting for a victory so it seems like God won. You know, or so it seems like uh, we won or whatever. So I was thinking about that this week. The last thing I was hoping we could do, just to kind of like 
invite God into this because even as I'm teaching, as we're listening, we really want to be in love with God. Um, I thought there was a couple statements I wanted to say and have you guys repeat back to me. And these are ways just to kind of let it sink in a little bit deeper. Um, so then I will say them, and you can say them back, unless you disagree with them. I don't feel like you have to say them. And then after that, I'll just pray for us as a reflection. So the first one is that we want to obey is a sign of our intimacy with God. So you can say that with me. That we want to obey is a sign of our intimacy with God. And then the next one is that we can obey is a sign of our salvation. That we can obey is a sign of our salvation. And that we do obey is a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. That we do obey is a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. All right, let's turn to Jesus. Jesus, I know you've already been in this room with us, surprising us, uh, dazzling us with ways that we wouldn't really think about the overcoming life. I thank you that what you did on the cross was way more than enough for all that was past, all that we've gone through, all that is present, and all that is in our future. You've overcome all of that, and as we lay ourselves down again this morning at your feet, and we see that fear is not even something that you are, that you're holding over us, that punishment, there's all been taken by you, Jesus. We just step into the presence of God with joy and with a lightness and with freedom. And we thank you that, uh, like you said in Matthew, you take our, our yoke upon your shoulders and we get to learn from you. And we say, Father, we just want to know your heart with your commands. We want to know how you work and think, how creative you are, and, and the ways that your holiness works out in our lives. And Jesus, we again just thank you that you took care of each of our offenses against you, our impurities, our sin, and that because of what you did, we're clean in our consciences. And we're free. We're, we have true freedom because of what you did, Jesus. And we get to understand the truth of your good news, that it is actually good. And we feel in our souls and our hearts just a little bit of that love for God that you brought to earth when you showed us who he was. And we ask that as we experience that now this morning a little bit, and as we're intrigued more to find you in your word, that you would draw us together in love for one another. Show us what that means to live that out. We want to be able to walk in your commands that are not burdensome, but actually liberating us into the freedom of a life that is overcoming. So Jesus, we honor you for all that you did for us 2,000 years ago and all that you're doing for us today as you stand in heaven as our advocate. And would you come and speak with us and teach us this week as we learn to walk in this together. Pray this in your name. Thank you for listening to the High Street Community Church weekly message. We hope you were encouraged to follow Jesus. For more, please subscribe to our podcast or visit us online at hscchurch.org.